Using the word magic allows us to focus on a particular kind of activity that went on and still goes on in Buddhist societies. These practices are well known to Buddhist monks and lay people in Asian countries and are described in detail in manuscripts. Yet they are far less apparent in the scholastic and doctrinal texts that have been the focus of much Buddhist scholarship. This holds true even in the tantric literature, which despite its sometimes transgressive imagery, remains focused on the ultimate Buddhist state of enlightenment. Thinking in terms of magic allows us to bring into view a group of practices that have little to say about Buddhist concepts of virtue, merit, and enlightenment, practices that are entirely intended for the everyday concerns of the present life. Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I am James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. When we think about Buddhism, we don't often think about monks and nuns conjuring spells or curses to break up lovers, exercise demons, prevent unwanted pregnancies, or kill enemies. But magic and healing rituals have been an integral part of everyday Buddhism since its earliest days and key to its enduring appeal and survival for over two and a half millennia. Unfortunately, the magical aspects of Buddhist history have been ignored or dismissed by scholars of Buddhism and by Buddhists themselves. In his new book, Buddhist Magic, Divination, Healing, and Enchantment Through the Ages, Sam Van Skyk, a textual historian and practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism, makes a compelling case for why it's high time to pay attention to Buddhism's magical heritage and what we lose when we cast it aside. Sam currently heads the Endangered Archives program at the British Library in London. Sam Van Skyke, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. So when we talk about magic, it's something that Western convert Buddhists don't normally associate their own practice with or their own understanding of Buddhism. But before we get there, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you mean by Buddhist magic. I've tried to define magic in the book both uh, broadly enough that it can take in a range of Buddhist practices, including, for instance, divination, medical practices, and um, other kinds of uh, what we might normally more think of as magic, like uh, invisibility, flight, and clairvoyance, but also not to let it be too broad so that we take in everything that is kind of in the realms of uh, the uncanny or um, unusual. So to go straight into what I do mean by magic in the book, I used three ways of defining it. Practices that I'm calling magic in Buddhism are those that are completely concerned with this life and this world. So we're talking about helping a pregnant woman with childbirth pains, for example, making sure that crops yield well and aren't attacked by insects, dealing with uh, troublesome people in your town or village, <laughs> all of these kind of things. So. So that's one aspect of magic. And if a bodhisattva or uh, the state of awakening is mentioned, it's in really entirely secondary to the practices and the effects of the practices themselves. So that aspect of Buddhism, should we say that kind of fundamental aspect of Buddhism, is not foregrounded in the texts and practices that I'm calling magic. And then the second aspect is a very clear connection between cause and effect in the magic spells themselves. So 
we'll get little snippets of a ritual for a spell. It'll just be a few lines, and it'll say something like, if you want to stop somebody from speaking, then you need to write their name on a piece of paper and uh, put it in your mouth, and then they won't be able to speak. So whereas I think in a lot of Buddhist practice that we're familiar with, the ultimate result is not kind of that clearly described. Sometimes it can be said to be completely indescribable, in fact, of course. But uh, one aspect of the magic text of the spells is that the cause, the practice itself and the effect uh, are very clearly described and one follows very quickly on the other. And then the third aspect of my definition of magic is about the texts themselves. And the book is centered on a, a manuscript, a book of spells, which is one of many such books in Buddhism. And it's a feature of this that uh, this book of spells collects short magic rituals from various sources that all focus on this worldly end. And they're collected together as a kind of package of magical practice. So the third definition is about the fact that when we come across these things in Buddhism, the texts themselves, the spells, are often collected together in this way into compendiums of practice. So these kind of three definitions arose from looking at the manuscripts and uh, the practices around them. So a lot of those spells sound useful. Um, (laughs) You list them in the back of the book, which I found very interesting and a lot of fun. But can you say something about that book of spells, where it was found, what it is exactly? Uh, I know it inspired this book. Yes, the book of spells is a, a manuscript. It's a paper booklet sewn in the middle and written in ink. And it's a manuscript that looks like it's been fairly well used. It's kind of a bit dirty and a bit ripped. Actually, it was made from other bits of paper, so it was actually reused in the making. So the whole kind of look and feel of this particular book is that it was made to be used, and it was well used. And um, before it was put away, it was already in a, in a state of some kind of disrepair, having been well used in the past. Now, the manuscript itself was found in a sealed cave along the region known as the Silk Road, where in roughly 1000 AD, a cache of manuscripts was walled up and uh, sealed away and painted over and then forgotten until it was rediscovered in 1900. This walled up cave was in a complex of Buddhist shrines, beautiful painted caves in Dunhuang in China in what's now the Gansu province. So it was situated on the trade routes that we popularly call the Silk Routes and was up to around 1000 AD. So throughout the first millennium AD, a very uh, well-traveled, very popular area for people to kind of pass through, both monks as pilgrims, merchants selling things. And this resulted in this very kind of spectacular cave complex where people had both the funds and the kind of Buddhist faith to to build these shrines and uh, have these beautiful paintings and sculptures that we find there. So the fact that this one cave filled with manuscripts uh, and also, by the way, paintings and uh, and some other objects was sealed away and rediscovered is a kind of accident of history. But what it meant is that a, a very early hoard of Buddhist manuscripts was kept basically untouched for nearly a thousand years and then kind of reopened to the world at the beginning of the 20th century. So it was rediscovered in uh, 1900, and then various archaeologists and explorers visited the site from England, France, Russia, and Japan, and also from Beijing, and took the manuscripts back to their various institutions. 
So uh, quite a lot of my career at the British Library has been working for the International Dunhuang Project, where we were involved in cataloging, photographing, uh, and putting the digital images of these manuscripts online, uh, along with colleagues in China and France and uh, other parts of the world. So bringing them all together virtually. And that is how I came across this manuscript back in um, the early 2000s. What language is that manuscript written in? So it's written in the Tibetan language, and that whole collection in Dunhuang is probably the most common language there is Chinese, and then very closely after that, Tibetan, and then some other Buddhist languages like Sanskrit and local Silk Road manuscripts with languages like uh, Uyghur and Cotonese and, and so on. So it's a real multilingual collection, but uh, Tibetan was an important language in that area ever since the period of the Tibetan Empire, when it was ruled mm -hmm. by Tibet for a, a century and a half or so. You know, when you published your findings, particularly the, the Tibetan Book of Spells, which you just spoke about, it caused quite a stir and it upset people that, you know, a monk or a nun was performing these rites for worldly gain or worldly or very practical results because normally people perhaps associate these monks and nuns with the soteriological goal of enlightenment. But here they were, you know, uh, performing rites to help people with very basic things, sometimes even eliminating somebody, murdering somebody. But why would this be so upsetting? Why do you think it shook people the way it did? Well, putting aside for just to begin with the really shocking spells, which are, involve murder or, or harm, I think there is a perhaps a, a misconception about Buddhist monks and nuns that they're entirely removed from the worldly life or the kind of day-to-day -day life of the communities around them. And I think that can be a view one gets from just reading the scriptural texts. But uh, if one looks at the archaeological sites of Buddhism in India, uh, along the Silk Road and in China, and kind of historical accounts, what always emerges is that monks and nuns were always kind of involved to some extent in the life around them. And uh, even if we acknowledge that, it doesn't mean that we're denying that they had this kind of soteriological Buddhist background as well. But it didn't actually involve them being entirely separated from the life of those around them. And I think we have to acknowledge as well that there's a kind of um, interdependency, a dependent origination even between the life of the communities that supported the monasteries and the monks and nuns and the lives of those monks and nuns themselves. And that can be expressed in just in the begging round, which is the, the classic um, way in which the monks were supported. But what the books of spells and, uh, and other kinds of evidence from history shows us is that it was a bit more of a two-way thing often. And monks actually provided more in exchange for those arms and support that they were given by their communities than, than just going around with, um, with begging bowls. So it was more transactional. Um, it was more of a, the monks offering something to the people around them. You also talk about how this has been referred to as the magical gig economy, these people performing rites for lay people to achieve a certain end. How did this contribute to Buddhism's spread and its becoming a cosmopolitan religion? How did this sort of magical gig economy do that? This is really important for us to understand how Buddhism spread both within India and then beyond India, even into places where some of those basic concepts which Buddhism was built on were not necessarily in the society, like, um, like rebirth, samsara, and karma. 
so monks had a and nuns had a, a huge work to do to convert people to a, a new way of thinking uh, and before they could even get there they had to establish themselves in some way in these communities so i think providing worldly services to people was one of those and i do emphasize in the book as well that, uh, that we can't really distinguish magic and, and medicine and about at least 50 percent of this book of spells in tibetan that i translated is is medical so most of this was healing and um eliminating disease and other hardships so we don't have to look at it as uh, through the filter of the, the kind of some of the kind of less savory side of the, the spells of course they are there but a lot of what they were providing was healing and help to people right you know it's it's interesting you say that performing these very practical rites to achieve very practical goals is what perhaps drew people to the tradition to begin with in contemporary world, we can say, well, mindfulness likewise draws people to the practice or to Buddhism ultimately, or it grounds it in a way that makes it perhaps more appealing or accessible to a broader public. But, you know, people responded so angrily. For instance, you know, we published an interview with you online and we lost a subscriber. Somebody said, I have canceled my subscription. I'm just wondering what the emotional response is. What, what idea or preconception are we upsetting or are you upsetting with the book? And, and how did it change your own understanding of Buddhist history? I feel like this is such an important part of the many Buddhist traditions in Asia that have survived for so long, not only survived, but flourished and, and continue to teach the kind of central teachings of the Buddha about suffering and, uh, and the end to suffering, that it's almost arrogant to not to talk about them. The book for me in many ways continued to chip away at my own sense of Buddhist exceptionalism, sometimes a, a, a sensibility I'm unaware of. So I, I thought it was very helpful in that way. We should have the full picture as Western Buddhists. We should understand these traditions which we are assimilating, trying to get to grips with, and trying to bring into a new soil uh, and new territories, uh, just as those monks and nuns did when they left India and traveled along the Silk Road. So I think I feel like it's not only kind of interesting and a response to curiosity, but something that may be important to our understanding of Buddhism in the West and our kind of being able to take on the whole thing and then decide what is for us and what isn't, rather than having knee-jerk reactions to it. In the West, magic is the, the practice of mages. In the Christian tradition, it's the other, it's the, the thing that's practiced Outside of Christianity, inside of Christianity, there are miracles. Outside, there's magic. Uh, and it's often associated with the demonic and the dark and so on. So it is a word with its own baggage. And I thought about this quite a lot when thinking about using the word in the book. But I think it's important and evocative enough that uh, it's worth using in the Buddhist context. But I, I do understand it. it could kind of turn some people away. So there's that element, just the word magic itself. And then the other is, uh, as you say, the fact that monks and nuns may not have held themselves completely above the toing and froing of society uh, and the kind of the needs and desires and loves and hatreds of, uh, of ordinary people, but sometimes got involved there and, uh, and practice a spell or a, a, a ritual that people had asked for to deal with these issues. So you know, I can see there, there is a, an issue there if you feel that um, Buddhists should remain entirely outside of the ups and downs of, of, of social life. 
You know, you mentioned that Emil Durkheim drew, drew a distinction between magic and organized religion. And how do you understand that? It doesn't really work in the Buddhist context. So we see, if you look at uh, Thailand, for example, and some of the most uh, revered abbots were also those who produced amulets and, uh, and did these other kinds of, of practices. Um, if you look in Tibet, you do have wandering yogins and ngakpas, uh, mantrins, who are kind of separate from the religious establishment, but very much so also people in the establishment. Um, when I wrote my book on the history of Tibet, there's something in the 13th Dalai Lama's biography where in order to repel the Manchu invaders, he had a, a magical diagram made, a yantra. So uh, it's, it's it's right there in the, in the in the religious kind of core of the, the Tibetan tradition as well. So Durkheim's distinction doesn't really work, at least for, for Buddhism. There's been a focus on enlightenment and, and in the West in particular, rationality and so forth of the teachings viewed really through a, a colonial lens probably. But how has ignoring magic distorted our view of the Buddhist traditions? I mean, what does it cost us not to know this? Well, it distorts our view by kind of pre-selecting the elements of the Buddhist tradition that seem rational or transrational in a way, it's kind of even kind of rejecting conceptualization and, and duality and going into a, a realm of non-duality entirely, but leaving behind that kind of messy element of, of society that we don't like. So I think one of the benefits of actually taking on magic in Buddhism is that we can see that it was always messy and to some extent embraced the mess. And for us, I think that helps us to feel maybe a bit less uh, insecure and guilty and like lesser Buddhists for living in a messy world and trying to practice in a messy context. You know, at one point you mentioned that the Buddha addresses right livelihood and excludes various forms of magic as a part of right livelihood. So on the one hand, that makes it pretty clear that this is going on. And on the other hand, it points to a tension that it seems to have existed. Can you say something about that tension, if there is any? Yes, for sure. And I think that tension is still visible and has been visible in the 20th century and, and through to now, probably, in the unwillingness of some representatives of Buddhist traditions to really discuss this aspect of their, their tradition. So it can be put in the background or not discussed or sometimes kind of uh, hidden. So I think that the tension is there. And you know, one doesn't have to speculate too much to see why. There's obviously a, a temptation to use these kind of practices to either for one's own personal gain and, and power or to get influence with, with other people. And of course, you know, it's, it's a distraction as well. So I think uh, rightly in Buddhism, while we can clearly see that these practices are there, there's also a parallel dialogue about not kind of getting kind of seduced by worldly power and the tools to that power, which uh, in, often in these earlier eras were these spells and rituals. The spells include incantations for healing, protecting, cursing, summoning spirits, and gaining supernatural powers. I understand that these rites were professional services. Is, is that correct? So one of the frustrating things is how difficult it is to really get back to the people who actually practiced these spells when you're looking at the, this manuscript, which is a thousand years old. 
But what I did in studying it, and what I've talked about a bit in the book, is looking at what's been recorded in the last few decades in terms of practices in villages in Highland Nepal, for example, or in Amdo, uh, in China and, and Thailand. And we're then looking at uh, something which is a thousand years later than the, the Book of Spells itself. But there are so many similarities that um, you can't help but kind of draw parallels. And when you look in those societies, uh, as I was saying earlier, you can see sometimes these uh, spells are practiced by kind of um, lone agents who are not associated with a, a Buddhist monastery or, or nunnery. And sometimes they're practiced within the, the monastery or the nunnery. But it, it is fascinating. It has been fascinating to me. One of the most kind of surprising things in this journey is not just that magic as such has been a part of the Buddhist tradition for so long, but the some of the spells themselves, some, some of the elements of them haven't changed over time. So uh, we have one, for example, uh, which involves for, uh, for exercising a, a demon, a kind of tiger-headed demon, which causes illness, which is making a, a cat out of uh, earth and the um, ground-up skull of a cat, uh, and then chopping that into pieces with a steel sword. And there's a there's an anthropological account uh, by actually two anthropologists in the 80s, I think, in in the highlands of Nepal, about a village ritual which involved, for exercising a, a similar kind of demon, involved the people of the village making a, a model of a cat and taking it outside the village and then with swords cutting it into pieces. So there is a, a continuity which is absolutely fascinating in this tradition that is not well documented otherwise, and somewhere in between the kind of the scripture where you see this ritual from maybe about 500 AD or maybe earlier to the, the manuscript which I looked at, which is uh, 1000 AD to the 1980s rituals, there's a remarkable consistency to the way uh, that magic is formulated and practiced. And along with that, ritual is becoming something that, that scholars are looking at more closely now. I think in the book you said, in vogue, possibly, <laughs> I, I believe you wrote that, it's not just for anthropologists. What is this return to a ritual, and is it related in any way to your interest in Buddhism's history of magic? It is a definitely a trend in the academic study of, of Buddhism, which I think goes beyond that into academia more generally, to move away from the early 20th century fixation on the kind of doctrine, the cortex, the uh, highest level of practice and the kind of highest level of people involved in that practice and to look at a more kind of on the ground level of religion. So the the whole kind of study of religions has, has moved towards that uh, looking at rituals. Um, and I do see this as, as a part of that. But for me, it's also working for years with the Dunhuang manuscript collections at the British Library, just getting to know what these things were, were that were left behind by people, kind of the evidence of their practice in the past. It wasn't a, like a library, this collection. It seems to have been deposited there over time, maybe as offerings, maybe when people died, their personal collections were put in there. Maybe it was also things that were somewhat um, damaged or incomplete and were, were put there rather than being thrown away. There are various theories about the cave itself. But, but what we can see is it was it's the kind of the residue of a vibrant Buddhist community. And there's everything from the Prajnaparamita Sutra to a shopping list of monks going into town to buy 
altar coverings and offerings. So uh, I think working on that material has really made me understand in a way that uh, studying the scriptural canonical texts will only give you a very small slice of the history and life of, of Buddhist practitioners. It's kind of interesting, the inclusive view of Buddhism that you have. In fact, the Dunhuang Cave seemed to include a whole world right. from magic to uh, scriptures on enlightenment, you know, and um, so nothing is left out more or less. And you do mention in the book that many people have the idea that there's this early Buddhism that is pure, that is free of all of this, what they would call nonsense. And you're saying from the get-go, this was a part of the framework. There can be a misconception about the Pali Canon itself, because it's sometimes taken as a very clear evidence of what early Buddhism was. But we need to remember that it was actually put together in the form we have it in the 19th century from manuscripts mainly dating not much further back than the 18th century. I think the earliest being the 15th century. So the Pali Canon, as we have it now, is if we're looking at the sort of the archaeology, the textual archaeology of the, of the Buddhist tradition, doesn't go back to the beginning in the way that sometimes people feel it does. So when we look at a Birchbach manuscript from Gandhara, from the first century BC or the first century AD, this is actually a more kind of concrete evidence of uh, what Buddhists were reading than uh, a 19th century edition of the Pali Canon. Right. Are there still vestiges of these magical practices in the rituals that Buddhists practice today? Uh, you do mention Tantra and you do mention Theravada Buddhism. You know, whether people like ritual or not, even sitting can be considered a ritual or taking refuge certainly is. As I have said in the book, the Vajrayana or Tantric Buddhism is deeply indebted to the magical tradition in that the mandalas, the mantras, and um, a lot of the kind of paraphernalia, the, the ritual paraphernalia, and I don't mean to use that in a disrespectful way, but the, the implements and so on that we find in the Vajrayana all come from earlier magical practices. So we find, for example, in the, the Book of Spells that, that I've translated, and also in some of the earlier Buddhist sutras, there are mandalas which are drawn uh, or constructed on the ground, using arrows and ribbons and vases and other objects, and that these are used for, for magical purposes, such as um, a good yield from crops, uh, for pregnancy, or for, for one of these kind of worldly purposes. But um, what, as I, I see it, happened with the Tantras and with, with the Vajrayana was kind of harnessing this ritual material to the higher goal of awakening. So almost everything that's, that's present in the Vajrayana practice has roots in the magical tradition, but kind of transformed for a soteriological goal. Now, we're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsor, St. John's College. St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico, is for undergraduate and graduate students who seek meaning in their lives, who ask hard questions of themselves and their world, and who dare to free their minds. The Graduate Institute is home for students seeking a lifelong commitment to thoughtful, collaborative inquiry into fundamental human questions. Students pursuing the Master of Arts in Eastern Classics examine the core literary, philosophical, and theological works of India, China, and Japan. 
In small, discussion-based classes, students delve both deep and wide into the richness of Asian traditions and study one of two ancient languages, classical Chinese or Sanskrit. The three-semester Eastern Classics program offers the flexibility of both online and on-campus options. Come join this vibrant community of learners from all walks of life. Learn more about the St. John's Master of Arts in Eastern Classics, including online options, at sjc.edu slash podcast. That's sjc.edu slash podcast. You know, I'd like to mention that you're also a practitioner in the Tibetan tradition. And I was wondering if you thought that for Tibetan Buddhists to revisit the roots of their tradition and and to know this uh, would be at all useful or have any practical uh, implications, or is it just something they should be aware of just to be aware of it? I think losing a sense of exceptionalism is very useful. And uh, I think seeing the connections with Tibetan Vajrayana and other traditions in India, uh, and indeed in Southeast Asia and, and Theravadan countries, is really, for me, I, f- I find it quite healthy. I think uh, that openness is good. And I think that's not to say we should just mix everything up and uh, you know, one thing's as good as the other, but uh, there is a lot that's in common. So what we see when we look at the kind of archaeology of, of Buddhism is magic and scriptural practice and meditation all kind of go hand in hand. It's, there's not, it's not one or the other. Right. You don't have to choose. And they all came together when Buddhism was brought into new cultures. In your book, you adopt new methods of textual studies, like bringing paper scientists and forensic handwriting experts to play. And can you tell us more about how this shed more light on these manuscripts or what they told you about the people who used them? Right. So those are kind of tools for when you look at a manuscript or a collection of manuscripts like the one from Dunhuang, tools to learn a bit more about when they were written, who wrote them, and and where. Because in a collection like Dunhuang, there are some things which are made and written locally, and some of them were brought all the way from Chang'an, the capital of China at the time, or, or from central Tibet. So you've got a vastly different range of manuscripts there but how do you distinguish them? So that's when we brought in paper scientists, for example, or we did handwriting analysis. So uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but what does handwriting analysis tell you? Yeah, in the early 2000s, I was working with Jake Dalton, who's now at Berkeley University, on catalog of the tantric manuscripts in Tibetan from Dunhuang. And we did notice as we went along that some of them seemed to be in the same handwriting. Uh, that maybe there were only a relatively small number of individuals producing these manuscripts. Uh, and then maybe we could start to sort of put them together and see, oh, this person taught uh, Maha Yoga, or, or this person was particularly interested in Vinaya, uh, or this person had this um, quirky interest in combining uh, Zen Buddhism with Tantric meditation. And in order to try and get some kind of Scientific is not quite the word, but some kind of evidence-based reason for saying this. We looked at handwriting analysis, and we brought in a a guy who worked with us 
a bit who actually had worked in the courts, you know, when somebody's written a ransom note or something and right. you want to say this is a handwriting and you produce another sample. And, uh, and so he, he told us about how that worked uh, and we tried to apply that to some of our manuscripts. And I think in the end, it may have been less of a knockout um, kind of in terms <laughs> of, <laughs> uh, yeah, this is definitely by the same person. Right. But it is just one helpful tool in, in looking at um, identifying somebody who may have written a whole group of like a, a dozen or, or, or so manuscripts in, in our collection, and then getting a better sense of that community that I'm talking about that's behind this manuscript collection. Uh, and then equally with a, with the paper analysis, we can quite clearly, actually, maybe this was more satisfying in a way, we could see that manuscripts that looked like they had come from central Tibet at the time of the Tibetan Empire were on a paper made from the Daphne bush, which is a Himalayan plant. Mm -hmm. And so almost certainly was at least the paper, but probably the whole thing was made in central Tibet and then brought to Central Asia and China. Uh, uh, wow, that's pretty amazing yeah. that you're able to discover that. Imagine, I mean, it's something that they couldn't have done before. Right, right. I mean, that was fascinating. And then equally for things that looked like that people thought had come from Chagan or elsewhere in, in, in China, they were on mulberry paper and the, the mulberry tree, again, grows there, but not in the Dunhuang region. And the, the things that we thought were from Dunhuang turned out to be mostly made of rag paper, which is a kind of recycled uh, textiles because there weren't enough trees to pulp for, for paper. And that goes for this, this spell book as well. So this was on, is made with rag paper. So it seems to have been a, a local production in the, in the Dunhuang region. That's really fascinating uh, that, that you can determine that. I was wondering if in other religions, similar studies are taking place. You mentioned Judaism, Islam, Christianity in the book. I mean, is there a similar resurgent interest in, in this aspect of our religions? Yeah. So I mentioned particularly Gideon Bohak's book on ancient Jewish religion, and he's written other things as well since then. But really looking at particularly the Cairo Geniza collection, which is a bit similar to the Dunhuang collection for the study of, of Jewish uh, religion and practice, because it's a sort of miscellaneous collection of manuscript fragments that were just forgotten about and had left for, for centuries. And he also says in the introduction to that book how much this was downplayed in an earlier phase in the, in the 20th century, by both by scholars and by, and by the rabbis who, who were worried about people perceiving Judaism as a superstitious religion and wanted to present it as a rational religion. And um, there's a, definitely a, a similar dialogue going on in, in Buddhism over the, the last few years. And yeah, uh, particularly for Jewish religion, but also uh, Iranian uh, religions, people are really looking at this in some of the uh, ancient religions as well, like uh, in like the Greek religion. We, we have this, again, idealized version of Greek philosophy and sculpture and, and so on. But uh, I quoted a few passages from the the Greek magical papyri. And uh, one of the really interesting things there is there's a description of Hecate, the goddess, where she looks very much like a wrathful tantric goddess. Coming full circle, I mentioned mindfulness early on, and there's a lot of controversy in the Buddhist communities about the application of mindfulness. I happen to be one of the people who thinks it's a great therapeutic method. One needn't be a Buddhist in order to practice it. But there are a lot of people who also want to support it scientifically. That's our prevailing narrative, I suppose. Do you see any similarity in taking a Buddhist practice and giving it ultimate practical value 
in a person's life. Do you see any similarity between that and um, the practical concerns of these earlier peoples and contemporary Buddhists as well, particularly in Asia, who apply these practical methods to make their lives better? As I said before, a lot of these these magical practices are for they're either medical or they're for easing people's um, pain or distress in, in one way or another. So there is a, a similarity to to mindfulness there. But I guess what uh, maybe concerns people about mindfulness is that having kind of taken it out of the the Buddhist context, that we might just lose that Buddhist context. Mindfulness takes off and, and the rest gets uh, gets forgotten about. So I, I don't think in the, the history of, of Buddhism that uh, Buddhist magical practices ever did that. You know, they, they may have had a, an important role in in different cultures and in different communities, but they don't seem to have kind of people have thought that's Buddhism or, or, or that's kind of resulted in people just forgetting about Buddhism. So maybe it's also the same for mindfulness. Maybe that's a, an unnecessary worry and that these things can coexist. Right. You, you say very explicitly in the book that magic did not displace these, these higher soteriological goals that, that Buddhists held or cherished. So what were some of your favorite spells in the Tibetan Book of Spells? Could you walk us through one of them? Yes. I mean, the one I find really fascinating is a, a divination spell in which uh, a mirror or a, the shiny blade of a sword or, or even a, a thumbnail, which is rubbed with oil can be used to uh, see the past or the future or, or something that's going on right now. And it, it fascinated me because it's uh, something that we find in uh, the scriptures. There's a sutra called the Questions of Subahu, where it appears. Uh, and through that, it went to China. Uh, it was also in India. It's known in the, um, mentioned in the Kala Chakra Tantra. But way beyond there, it's also found in Jewish magic. It's found in European magic, in uh, grimoires. So that, that one practice has really kind of created a huge number of, of links uh, across the world. So what's next for Buddhist studies and for Western practitioners of Buddhism? Big question, probably impossible to predict. <laughs> do, you, do you have a mirror? I don't know. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'd love um, to go get one. <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, I just think there's a, a gradual growing up in a way of, of Buddhism in, in the West, which is to, and I don't want to say that I'm a major part of this, but just part of a trend, I think, to be open to the whole tradition and, and not just to say, I, I like this part of it. People in the past and scholars as well have not even been that honest about it. They don't say, I like it. They say, this is the real tradition. And that other part is, right. is some kind of addition that came later on or some kind of local tradition or, or so on. So I think um, rather than saying this is Buddhism, this bit is Buddhism, that bit isn't. Having a kind of openness to the whole thing and um, without relativism, without saying this is equally worthy as that, just uh, take a breath before you decide what's worthwhile and what isn't. And uh, just um, then we can move forward based on a a more mature understanding of the the tradition that we're we're inheriting. We talked about few of our readers who cancel their subscriptions, which we hold you responsible for. And I'm um, sorry. <laughs> we also talked about practitioners and how they might respond. How are other scholars responding? And um, were these texts downplayed or kept out of sight? Or is this just part of the natural evolution of scholarship? More becomes available, more people become interested and introduce something new. Is, is the response in the academic community different from, say, the response that I mentioned earlier? 
Well, I haven't read any academic book reviews, so they're, they're, I, I shouldn't say too much in case there's a really nasty one out there that I haven't okay. read. <laughs> but so far, positive. Um, I think there's a, you know, as we were saying, there's this this turn towards ritual. There's there's an interest in this kind of material, and other people that I cite in the book, like uh, Peter Skilling or, or Brian Quavis, have already written a bit about magical practices in, in right. Buddhism. So there's a, a kind of readiness, I think, to, to look at this side of Buddhism more seriously in the academic world. In other words, we'll be hearing more about this. Yeah, I think so. Well, Sam Van Skyke, it's so great to speak with you. That was a wonderful conversation. Thanks. And I'd like to encourage all of our readers to pick up a copy of the book. It's Buddhist Magic, Divination, Healing, and Enchantment Through the Ages. Tune in next month when I'll be chatting with the editors of Black and Buddhist, What Buddhism Can Teach Us About Race. We'd love to hear your thoughts about our podcast. Write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle the Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.